Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Uh, good morning, my name is Andy Short. I invite you to stand, uh, and I will read our scripture uh, for our sermon today. And uh, yes, this is the same one we read last week, so uh, it's not a mistake. Uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, uh, on the subject of wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. We are looking at the, uh, the idea of marriage from this text for several weeks here. And uh, what I'd like to talk to you about this morning is uh, what exactly makes for a great marriage? I heard a story um, from a friend of mine um, a couple weeks ago. He said that uh, a couple uh, went in to see a doctor, and uh, on, the, on their um, little profile, it said that they had been married for 70 years. And the doctor said, that's incredible, 70 years. What's the secret? of 70 years of marriage, and the woman looked at him and just said, well, I guess neither of us died. <laughs> it's, it's probably a little bit more than that. <laughs> but yeah, what do you think makes for a great marriage? What makes it better and more realistic and long, long than a business relationship? Uh, almost everybody in our culture thinks that the secret to that would be passion. Uh, Sylvia Smith, from uh, she's a regular writer on marriage.com, she said this, romantic passion is the force that keeps you and your partner going. It is the key to a successful and happy married life. Now, passion is great, but what's wrong with building your, your marriage on passion? Uh, passions come and go. They're here today, gone tomorrow, hoping that a marriage uh, can be built on passion and excitement is like hoping uh, that you, at 80 miles per hour through the Hollywood Hills will just work and that the, the road will just be straight the whole way and that there are no curves and that there are no blind turns and that there are no sharp lefts or right. A uh, Harvard psychologist, uh, Scott Peck, uh, his great work in the 1978, uh, a book called The Road Less Traveled. In the book, he argues that the honeymoon phase of relationships are actually somewhat dangerous to us. 
He says, what happens in a honeymoon phase of a relationship is that uh, your excitement and interest with somebody else uh, can be to such a degree that it can almost blind you to sometimes red flag character flaws that you would never be in tune to, that you'd never want to call out because you're so caught up in this thing that you have with this person or what this person could possibly give you. And he says the other real danger to the honeymoon phase is that it can train you to think that this is how love works and what it's supposed to look like. And in fact, if we don't have this, then there's something to be worried about in the nature of our relationship. He says successful and longevity in marriage actually has to endure the honeymoon phase, almost let it erode or or be blown up, and then you can get a rich foundation to build a marriage that will actually be something to celebrate and be a part of. How do you get that? What does it look like to have a foundation that's more than superficiality, longer than honeymoon phase, and something that's uh, more encouraging than just surviving death? I I think this is what the Bible gets out of the essence of marriage. Let's look at that this morning. What, What is the essence of marriage? Two points. What is the essence of marriage? And two, what's the hope for it? First, the essence of marriage. Look, God created marriage, and so if it's gonna have, we're going to have a marriage that is great, and after Him, there, there's attributes that are true of Him that have got to be true in us, and there's two. In uh, really, verse 31 is the first I want to focus with you this morning. Uh, a, the essence of marriage is a covenant. Look what Paul says in verse 31. He says, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. In the ancient Near East, the family was the primary social institution. And the way that you would create it is two individuals would make a covenant. And how they would make a covenant, it was was a public ceremony. What they would do is they would take an animal and they would cut it in half. And they would walk between the pieces And what they would be saying is that uh, what we're doing today in this relationship, if we don't uphold the vows that we're taking, may this be true of us. Which actually in some way we do today. I mean, you ever wondered why we actually have a center aisle? And why we actually have the bride uh, walk down the center aisle? It's because what we're doing is we're symbolizing that. We're saying the body of Christ cut in half, which... Paul argues that we should, you know, is, is the body of Christ torn? He says, by no means. But we're, we're tearing that apart and saying, may this become true of us if we do not uphold our vows. And what, what's symbolizing is that when you get into a marriage, you are not building it on feelings. You're not building it on interest. You're not building it on passion. You're building it on permanence. You're saying, this is true until death. And that's so important for us because that's not how most of us get into a marriage. The most of us get into a marriage not on the idea of covenant, but on the idea of contract. What do I, what do I mean by contract? Well, um, I've got a contract with LA Fitness. Um, every month I pay them $20 and they let me go into all of their facilities and use them for as long as I want. Now, um, if I do not uphold and pay my $20, they're going to stop letting me in. They're going to have somebody at the door. You're not permitted to come in. 
or I can choose to not go to them anymore if I think those facilities are not up to par or up to code or up to my, my liking. But our relationship exists basically on, you do this for me, and I'll give you what you want. And I'll give you what you want, and you, you get what you want. That is, we're building this on what each other wants and what each other needs. But a marriage is built not on what you're giving me. Not, it's not even built on how you're doing this for me and how I feel about it. It's, it's built on what you promise and covenant to be. Um, when it, whenever I do weddings, and I'll do uh, marriage counseling, one of the last things we always do is go over the wedding ceremony. And, uh, and I tell bride and groups, I say, hey, this is your wedding ceremony. There's some things, like the music you can choose. You can tell me what you would like me to preach on. Um, if you would like some family members to read some scripture or those things, that's fine. But you, but you may not write your own vows. Because... A, you're not the first person to ever do this, as if uh, you're inventing this new institution. And B, this is not an expression of how you feel on that day. Obviously, on that day, you're going to be head over heels caught up in one another. You will look as, about as beautiful as you're going to look in your life that day. Uh, everybody is there. It's the fulfillment of so much anticipation. Of course it's joyful. Of course it's wonder. But what you're going to do that day is not express how you feel, but tell each other who you will be when you don't feel that way anymore. And you're going to stand up in front of everybody else and covenant that says, I will be this no matter what happens to you. Whether you become severely sick whether you lose your job, whether you become somebody that I did not anticipate you becoming, I will be faithful. I will be forgiving. I will be loving. And the essence of marriage is, is built on that. But th Some of you are like, that's so stoic. Um, that's so boring. But it, it's not just a covenant. It, it's a friendship within the covenant. Because here's what the verse says. He will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, that's the goal of the covenant, that two people would become one. Now, what does it mean to be one flesh? Um, it's not talking about bodies. Um, there's a place in the Old Testament when uh, the Lord is talking about uh, the coming of, of the Messiah and the promise one day of, of, of even giving his spirit, and he says, I will pour out my spirit on all, uh, on, on all flesh. Now, what's the Lord saying? He's not saying, I will, I will pour out my spirit on all bodies. He's saying, I will pour out my spirit on people, on all, pe all persons. And what the language is getting at is that one flesh is taking two people and putting them in the same life putting them in the same story, putting them in the same purpose together. It's a metaphor for very deep friendship. Now, casually, friendship can be built on lots of things. I mean, if you share an interest with somebody, um, that's kind of when you can discover that you can hang out with them. You know, like if you, if you share an interest in the Dodgers or you share an interest in a sport or you share an interest in a book, you're like, hey, well, we, we should get together and talk about that. But again, if you want to, to, to build a foundation, 
for a marriage on that. The problem is hobbies and interests, they come and go. I mean, there's so many things I loved in my 20s that I don't like anymore. Um, There's some things that I don't like anymore that Becky's like thankful that I don't like anymore. There's some things I don't like anymore she's confused about me not liking anymore. But you can't build a friendship on just likes because, for better or worse, for people, people change. There's a place in uh, The Four Loves where C.S. Lewis is talking about friendship, and he says, here's what a friendship is. A friendship is two people walking along a path for a common purpose to a common horizon. He says, how a friendship is cultivated is when two people want to go to the same place and they walk together. And he says, as you walk together, how the friendship develops is you almost lose your sense of self along the path. And you stop thinking of yourself as a self and you start thinking of the walk in terms of an us. That there is no step without this other person. There is no way we're going to this place by myself, but only with you. And that is a friendship. And the essence of a marriage is building something on a covenant friendship and and how radical that is in the midst of a culture that wants to do contractually on attraction, on just passion and on interest. Now, if you are uh, skeptical of that at all or confused by that, especially if you're single, let me draw you in this way. A covenant friendship is significantly better for a relationship for, for a couple reasons. I'll just give you two. A, it, 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 you're uniquely free, actually, in a covenant friendship. Now, some of people are afraid to get into the, a, a permanent covenant because we're afraid that we're giving up all of our freedoms and we're giving up all of our desires. That is, uh, I, I don't know what I'll want when I'm 30. I don't know what I'll want when I'm 40. I don't know how I'll feel about you. I don't know if this uh, attraction uh, that I have now will last. Um, but that is under a, a, an illusion. See, one of the dangerous illusions that we have in our culture about freedom is the idea that if I can't chase my desires, then I'm not free. But let me ask you, who, who is more free? Uh, the kid in the candy store without supervision who is just consuming any and everything he wants, or the kid who walks by the candy store unsupervised and can stop himself from taking anything. There's a place in, in Soren Kierkegaard's work where he says, you know, unless you can bind yourself to somebody else, you are not a free person. Because what that means is you are always subject to the slavery of your desires. See, if you just open yourself, I, I don't want to bind myself to anybody else. I, I want to be free to like new people. I want to be free to be sexually active in all these kinds of relationships. Here's what you're setting yourself up to. Every single popping desire that, that flashes like a commercial to you, you will have to give yourself to it. And the irony is you're not free. You're a slave to your own desires, letting them master you and you not mastering them. But what a covenant does is it almost takes that equation away. 
It, it, it just stops you before you can even follow your desires. It challenges you to question your desires. And it teaches you to master them. I mean, a covenant friendship, it gives you an incredibly unique view of freedom, but it also, it gives you better intimacy. Look, if you're in a contractual relationship with somebody else, and, and you almost all experience this when you're dating, you are always in the business of marketing and promoting yourself. You know, putting your best uh, physical side forward, putting the best parts of your personality, hiding the parts of you that are worried nobody would love. And, and that means there's always an incredible fear. And you're always having to hide. And there's never any safety. When this verse that I read to you from uh, Ephesians 5.31, Paul is quoting Genesis 2.24. In the very next verse that he says that after a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, it says that Adam and Eve looked at each other and it says they were naked and they felt no shame. Now, here's what one flesh out of a covenant gives you. It's the ability to be naked with somebody else and feel no shame. Now, the, the Hebrew word there for naked is way more than just physically uh, with no clothes on. It's to be utterly exposed. And it's tapping into you and I's deepest longing. See, what our, what our deepest longing in a relationship is, is for somebody to look at us from top to bottom and say, I know you. I know everything about you. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. I know you're good. I know you're bad. I know you're ugly. I know your beauty. And I love you and I will not reject you, and I'm here. See, in a marriage, to be known and rejected, few people can recover from that. But to be supposedly loved but not known is a loneliness few people can live with. And what you desperately need in a marriage is the freedom to take your guard down, to take the layers off and to say, I've never shared this with anybody. I've never opened up about this. I've never been able to say this to somebody else, but I have to say this. And for them to not be able to leave after you do it. See, if you know, if you know the other person will stay, what it will do is actually get you more intimate than you've ever been in your life. It will actually enable you to share. It will actually enable you to hear about yourself in a way you've never heard it. Let me give you two Proverbs that really amplify this. Proverbs 18.24 says this, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That is saying that, that friendship... Deep friendship, it's not inhibited by pain and fighting. But it actually grows to a unique way through the pain and fighting. You know what that means? That means if you've never fought with somebody, you're probably just a companion and not a real friend. See, I hear this all the time because I've done so many weddings for college students or post-college students and they'll just say things like, we never fight. And they think you're supposed to be impressed by that. 
I'm always worried. Because it means you're not real friends. Because this says the, the way to friendship is not to avoid fighting, but actually learning to do it profoundly well. Here's another one, Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That is saying, if, if you have never told somebody something hard about them, you do not love them. You are actually their enemy. And you hate them. And now, some of us have been in relationships before where we know there are some things that we want to share with somebody else, but we're terrified to share it because we're afraid of how they will react. We're afraid it won't go well. We're afraid it'll make our life harder if I share this thing. But you know what? When you don't do that, you don't love them. You love yourself. And what a real friend, see, what a real covenant friendship does is it says, I grant you access to tell me about me. Let me, let me apply this in a couple of ways for us. Uh, one, for a covenant friendship, this means if you want this, you have to spend time together. And spend time together not like a business relationship. I, I, Becky and I have gone on uh, dates before where, where this has been dangerously acute for me, where we're, we're on the date, and I realize we're talking about what we need to do with the children, or what we should do with money, or how we should think about the future of our life. Now, those are absolutely necessary questions, and conversations that everybody has to have. But if that's all you have, you just have a business relationship. Now, think, think some of you are in big companies with lots of people, and have made friends with people who are your coworkers, you never make that in the meeting. You know how you make that. It's you spend time with them outside of the context of work. You go do a hobby together. You get dinner together. You spend time in a way and get to know them beyond the context of the business relationship. If you want a covenant friendship, you've got to, you, you have to schedule it. You've got to look for ways for us to open up and to be a part of a relationship where we're not just doing the fiscal or the parenting parts of this relationship. Secondly, you've got to start to develop honesty and vulnerability. A covenant friendship has got to be more than a hobby. Now, that means that you've got to learn to share about them and to share about you. You've got to share things that you've never shared with anybody else. There are lots of people that Becky and I are friends with in our neighborhood who um, we love to go to baseball games with. We love to go on walks with. We love to go to dinner with. But we don't tell them the really vulnerable parts of our story. We don't tell them our fears. We don't tell them things that upset us all the time. Some people we get a little bit more close with. If you can't do that with people then you've just got companions, you've just got friendship. And, and that's fine to function in a neighborhood with. It's very lonely to function in a marriage with. You, you've got to share things that bother you about the other person. And you've got to be open to hear things that are clearly bothering the other person. You've got to listen. You've got to share. 
third way I would apply this for a covenant friendship is most of us, if not all of us, need help to be able to do that. Now, this is just, this is not from the text. This is my own personal advice. It is perfectly fine and perfectly healthy and highly recommended to go see a marriage therapist. Look, Becky and I talk about marriage therapy this way. Why are we, why are we of the opinion that you annually go to a, a doctor for a checkup? You go to a dentist to get your teeth cleaned twice a year. You take your car into a mechanic for a checkup, for a tune-up, for an oil change. You don't go to those things at the last resort when everything is dying. If the first time you ever go to a doctor is when you're the sickest in your life, it's almost a foolish visit. If you go to a, a dentist without any teeth, what's the point? If the first time you take your car to a mechanic, it's already dead, what are you doing? Look, you're a man and a woman. You have nothing in common. You're two broken people who are more sinful than you ever know, but more loved than you dare hope. It is a very healthy thing to go to somebody and say, help us learn to talk. Help us learn to be vulnerable. That, that's not the sign of a broken marriage. That's the sign of somebody who wants to care for their marriage the same way you care for your body, you care for your teeth, you care for your car, you care for all your hobbies that we do give attention to. If you want a covenant friendship. I'll give you a beautiful picture of this. Um, Rick Riley, who uh, used to write for Sports Illustrated, was very good friends with John Wooden. And he would spend lots of time with him, and uh, towards the end of his life, was spending time at his house in, in Westwood. And, um, and found something on his desk, and it was, he said, what's this? And he said, that's a, that's a, white, a letter to my wife. Now, his wife passed away 24 years before John passed away. So he was a widow for 24 years. And Rick found out well, what he did is every month... John would write a letter to his wife, update her her on what he'd been doing, how he'd been feeling, how he'd missed her, and expressed all these things. He wrote it, put it in an envelope, sent it to no one. And it's just stacks of them, once a month for 22 years. And and Rick found them, and he said, "This this is amazing. We should publish this. These are so beautiful. And John wouldn't react. He just clenched his chest. And he said, it's still, it's still too soon. It's still too soon. After 22 years. Now, those of you who are single right now, look at me. Do you want somebody who's hot? Or do you want something like that? That 22 years after you pass away, you were such good friends, you can't move on. Because that's what Ephesians 5 is getting at. It says that's the essence of a marriage. That you live that, you experience that with somebody else. Now secondly, quickly, what's the hope for that? 
is almost the moment that you hear that, there's two reactions the heart will have. On the one hand, um, some of you are going to go home and have some high expectations on one another. It's usually one spouse is like, I've been wanting this for years. I'm so glad somebody said it. And what we can do is we can put enormous expectations on the other person to be emotionally, spiritually, physically what we desperately want. The other part of the reaction is to realize that we've never had that. And we never think we will. And to even wonder if it's possible. There's a place in John 15 when Jesus is going to die. And he looks at his disciples and he says, you're my friends. And he suggests, and so I'm going to go to the cross for you. And what he's embodying there is a covenant friendship, which means this. Your longing for this and your desire for somebody to give it to you is, is not a cynical desire. It's not a naive desire. It's not foolish. It's not a dream. You were built for that. And God wants to give it to you. But you know what? Along the way in marriage, we're meant to have droplets of it and probably not the full experience. So, so how do you stay with somebody? What's the secret for a covenant friendship of wanting it? Here's what it is is you have to be that while you're not getting that. See, when you hear this, you think, I've always wanted you to do this for me. I'm glad we have the content now. But the secret is for you to do this. And the only way you can do that is if you have the hope that one day you're going to truly get that in the way that you long for that. There's a place in Matthew 22 where Jesus is arguing about marriage and the afterlife with the Sadducees. Now, Sadducees, they, they did not believe in the resurrection of the afterlife, so they're setting Jesus up for this trap. And so what they do is they say, okay, Jesus, there's this Old Testament law. Uh, this guy was married to this girl. And he died. And by law, his brother had to marry her. And then he died. And so the law was that, that bro- the next brother had to marry her. And then he died. And then the next brother had to marry her. And the law kept going until seven of the brothers all married this one woman because it's in your Old Testament law. Okay, Jesus, at the resurrection and in the afterlife and in heaven... Who's going to be her husband? And see, what they're setting him up for is, is this absolutely insane situation where, yeah, who are you married to in heaven? Some of you have been married more than once, and you wonder, yeah, like, what's that going to be like? Who am I married to in heaven? And you know what Jesus says? He says, uh, nobody. Because in heaven, at the resurrection, you will not be given in marriage. Now, Every time I've ever read that, well, the first couple of times I read that, I got depressed because it sounded like Jesus just won't, 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 just, man, isn't, isn't spirituality and Christianity so great? Because in heaven, we're all just going to be friends. But you know what? 
what we believe deep down and we're afraid of and why it's so hard to go through the loss and, and, the, and the, the struggle of a marriage that doesn't give you what you want is because you and I think the best things I can get in life are here and now. And if I don't go get them, I'll never experience them. There was a, a, a really highly acclaimed movie about 10 years ago with Joaquin Phoenix called Her, where he was married, uh, had a sad divorce. And one of his emotions afterwards is he says this, sometimes I think I've felt everything I'm ever going to feel. And from here on out, I'm not going to feel anything new, just lesser, lesser versions of the best things I've already felt. And some of you are afraid that's what you've got in a marriage or you've missed out on that. But here's what Jesus says to that fear and to that question. He says, you don't know the power of God. And what he means is that what's coming is not going to be less intimate and less powerful than anything you've experienced here. And he says, no one will be given in marriage in heaven. You know why? Because at the moment you die and you meet Jesus, you will be married to him. And he says, it will be more powerful, more intimate, more rich than any marriage you've ever experienced here. And if you don't know that, friends, please, right now, consider letting that in your heart. Consider taking that in so that you can be a covenant friend to somebody, so that you can be this and do this even when you're not getting it, even if you never get it, that you can live with the power of that hope. George Matheson was a man um, who was a believer and was engaged at 20 years old, and he found out he was going to be blind. He went and told his fiancée, and she broke up with him. She said, I don't think I want to be married to somebody who can't see me the rest of my life. So he had to go through his life blind and being cared for by his sister. And his sister eventually got engaged and was going to get married, and he was afraid that he was going to be utterly alone and left in this world without anybody to truly love him. And he said, in almost a matter of minutes, it almost just came to him. He wrote this hymn called, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And here's what the first lyric says, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in your ocean depths of love, it may richer, fuller be. Look, if you know that, do you know how free you will be to be able to give yourself fully in permanence, in vulnerability to somebody, whether they give it to you or not? Look, that's the essence of marriage, a covenant friend. Know what's coming from Jesus so you can be that to somebody now. Let me pray. Father, uh, I pray for marriages in this room. I pray for people who are not married who want to be married, who look forward to a marriage, Lord, would you set us free from the cultural baggage of, con of contracts, 
of the fear of just having to keep passion going, would you give us something more beautiful? Would you give us a covenant friendship, Lord? Somebody to walk through life with that anticipates what we will one day get from you. Help us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, come into marriages. Make them ever renewed. Use the gospel for great things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.